Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We're so glad you've decided to join us, and now we invite you to grab your Bible, if you're able, as we pray that you will be blessed by the preaching of the truth of God's Word today. As I come up today, I'm reminded that this is no ordinary Communion Sunday that we're having today, but it's in fact designated as World Communion Sunday, which for those of you that don't know is a time where we gather together as the capital C church, not just in local congregations, but all across the world where the body of Christ united takes communion together. Um, Paul reminds us, and we'll cover this later on, that one of the necessities for being able to do that is understanding what communion is and what it means. And oftentimes as Baptists we're picked on for that because we have this understanding along with some other denominations, some other movements in the faith, that the bread and the cup are symbols of a greater truth. But there's this misconception, and in some cases it's a misconception within even our congregations, that because the elements are symbolic, then the activity is meaningless. When, any, when, when nothing could be further from the truth. Communion is the highest form of worship that we engage in as Christians. It is where we come to the table with Christ, with the disciples, with the people from eras past and present and future, where we remember who Christ is to us, who we are within the kingdom, and what being part of that kingdom means for us. If you would, let's before we go any further, because this is such a an integral understanding for who we are as Christians, would you bow your hearts with me? Heavenly Father, we do ask that during this time that you would examine our hearts, that uh, you would make us fully aware of the gravity of, of what we come to your table for. That, Lord, we remember your body, your sacrifice, that we remember your blood, the covenant which makes us Christians which makes us part of the family of God. So open our hearts as well as our minds now to your word. Not only that we may understand, but that the future generations that come after us would understand what this means, why it is important, and Lord, the knowledge that, that this is a relationship that we have with you that among all the other religions of the world, of all the other peoples on the earth, Lord, we have the singular privilege of having a direct and personal and intimate relationship with our Creator. That we do not need someone interceding. We do not need another human being standing between us and God, for we have a relationship with God ourselves through the activity of your Son. For whose, in whose name we come to you now, for the sake of whose eternal kingdom we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. So take out your copy of God's Word with me this morning and turn to the Gospel according to St. Matthew. I realize we've been spending an awful lot of time in St. Luke. 
But we're in Matthew's Gospel today. Chapter 26. Starting with verse 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread. He blessed it, broke it, and gave it to His disciples and said, Take and eat it. This is My body. Then He took a cup. And after giving thanks, He gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you. For this is My blood of the covenant. We'll get into what that means in just a second. Which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And we know that story. Where Jesus went to the place where He would kneel before God. And in three separate occasions, He would ask them, let this cup pass by me. And that's a whole sermon in itself, but in summation, he was, he was giving the disciples an instruction of what was about to take place and what it meant to them. Now there's the, the, the historical part of this, which says that Jesus was betrayed, He was crucified, He went into, He descended into death, He was buried in a borrowed tomb, but on the third day, what happened? He rose again. But what does that mean for us in our relationship with God? That's what we'll be examining today as we talk about the idea of the new covenant. Now, we as a church have a covenant which makes us members of a local body of believers. But there's a second covenant that the communion act actually represents and reminds us of. A covenant is a willful service it's an act of protection where a greater king goes to a lesser people and takes him under their watch care. Let's develop that understanding right now before we go any further. An act of covenant in, in the Near Eastern thought is an activity whereby a lesser people come under the watch care of a greater lord or a great king. Now, this was seen under uh, the activity between Abraham and God himself where God promises the land of promise to him and his descendants. And Abraham almost laughs at God. Sarah eventually does. In fact, that's what, her, that's what the name Isaac means is laughter because initially it sounded too fantastic what God was promising them. It sounded too incredible what God was declaring that he was about to do for them. But he promised that Sarah would have a son of her own and that that son would be the answer to the world's problems. That from him, would come a new kingdom. And that kingdom would lead the rest of the world in understanding who the one creator God was. But not only that, from his descendants would emerge a human being who himself would be God incarnate. A leader who would reclaim the people of God, who, who would reclaim the world for God. And when this covenant was established, it took place in the midst of a sacrifice. Abraham basically uh, sacrificed a bunch of animals, laid them in a figure eight pattern. And the, the idea back at that time, the tradition was that you would walk in between these animals, symbolizing the fact that if you broke that covenant, if you violated it, 
May I be as these animals. But an amazing thing happened. And I want you to pay attention to this. In fact, as I'm speaking it to you, please write it down. When Abraham, in the book of Genesis, was about ready to take this covenantal walk with God, a a walk that would not only bind him to the relationship, but all that would follow after him and his household, God put him to sleep. And a pillar of fire representing God, the image of God, if you will, made the walk on Abraham's behalf. Basically, it's God telling Abraham that you can't take this walk. I will keep the agreement. I will take the whole thing upon my shoulders. I will ensure that you become this great nation and that from your nation, all of the world is redeemed. That responsibility God takes upon himself. It's reflected later on In the words of Paul, when he says that I am convinced of this thing, he who has begun a good work in you, he will draw it also unto completion. God takes responsibility for his promises to you. That's why his promises do not fail. Even though more times than not, when we try it on our own, without his power, what happens? That's why we need grace. And we'll talk about that in just a second. The lesser Lord, or the lesser people, in return offer their faithfulness. They offer obedience and they offer service. What does the Lord require of you, O man, but that you love justice, but that you love mercy and walk humbly before your God? It's a simple, simple means of covenant. You offer service to him who loved you in the first place. It is sustained by grace, and it is only broken through rebellion. Does this sound familiar? It's an agreement that is forged through sacrifice. It's not just a contract, because contracts are made of if-then statements. If something happens, then you are penalized. Anyone who ever has owned a credit card knows this to be true. Covenants take place by grace. If something happens that was an error, if something happens that was an act of temporary defiance, one for which the lesser person comes to the greater Lord and begs for forgiveness, then according to a covenant, the Lord has the right to extend grace to that person to bring them back in to forgive. Now for this covenant to take place, as I alluded to earlier, both sides offer a sin offering before God. In this case, God himself doesn't need to because he is righteous. But they require a sin offering, the other party, which would be us, a sin offering was required so that before we could come into agreement with God, we had to be able to stand righteous before him. Both sides then offer a fellowship offering, which uh, takes place in which they are both considered now friends, but not only friends, they are considered by law as family members. I once called you my servants, but now I call you my friends. Jesus later also calls them his brothers. And it is bound together through the partaking of a meal. In Romans chapter 5, Paul is basically commentarying on what we just read from Matthew. And he writes, Since we have been justified through faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace which, in which we now stand. And we boast of the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone may possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates, God proves His own love for us in that while we were still yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. For the first time in all of history, God Himself gave the sacrifice. God produced a sacrifice to sate his own anger, his own vengeance, his own need for righteousness. The law was not suspended. It was completed. It was fulfilled. Because while we were still yet in our sin, God accepted us as sinners by producing a sacrifice that we could not do on our own. That through the shedding of the blood of Christ, the law was completed and we could stand righteous before a God who himself was holy. In that, though we were feeble, finite, fickle, and frustrating, all the other things that you could possibly call a fallen creation, God Himself paid the price to bring us home. Since we now have been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? This is a covenant that is sustained by grace, but it is also a covenant of grace, a grace that we do not deserve. And that's something that we kind of need to keep in mind because we use a handful of words interchangeably. Justice, for instance, we call upon God for justice. Trust me, you don't want justice from God. Why do I say that? Because the wages of sin is... How many of us have ever sinned before God? If any of you couldn't raise your hand, get out, because you'll mess the rest of us up. Okay, we, we all deserve God's justice, and God's justice for sin only has one penalty. The wages of sin is death. So, in effect, justice is getting precisely what you deserve. Mercy, on the other hand, is not getting what you deserve before God. In God's mercy, He produced a sacrifice that we could not on our... Uh, we were not capable of giving on our own. He paid the debt that he didn't owe. A debt for which there was no way that we could possibly pay. So mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace, on the other hand, is getting much more than you deserve. Not only that, but getting much more than you deserve through love. Agape. Sacrificial love. The love that denies the self. You want a story of humility? How about this? The king of the universe himself in all of his splendor, the king over everything, became a human being. Not just a human being, but a human being born not in a palace, not in a castle, not even in a house, but in a stable. We'll talk about that in a couple of months. But that is a supreme lesson in humility before God. And such was his heart for you that he allowed himself to live in abject poverty, 
that he allowed himself to be homeless, that he allowed himself to be from a marginalized family in a marginalized nation, a slave to a greater power. And not only that, he humbled himself, as the song that we just sang a couple of minutes ago, he humbled himself to the worst death imaginable, which is why in the Garden of Gethsemane, not once, not twice, but three times, the Son of God goes before God in prayer and asks, let this cup pass by me. If there's any other way to get this fallen creation into heaven, if there's any other way to redeem the sins of man, if there's any other way to have these people become holy in the sight of God, please let it happen that way, but not this way. Nevertheless, thank God he prayed that. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. If there was any other way to get to heaven, the Father would have answered. But after praying that prayer three times, be certain of this, when Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one cometh unto the Father but by me, that's exactly what he means. The only way to everlasting life, the only way to avoid condemnation is through the blood of Christ, and that's it. Which is why I put this up. Grace does not countermand righteousness. God is a righteous God. He is a perfect God. He's the judge of all creation. Sin is still unacceptable before him, which is why the Apostle Paul writes, should we sin all the more so that grace may abound? And then he tacks the words, God forbid. But he equips us as a part of that covenant. He equips us to make sure that sin becomes the exception, not the rule. And there's actually a provision in place that when we sin, we can still come back before God and be made righteous. The sacrifice of Christ, we claim, is a propitiation of sin, meaning that it sated God's wrath in all things, past, present, and future. Once you come unto Christ, you cannot depart from Him. It is not possible. We'll talk about that in just a second, but there are several proofs in Scripture that say as much. And besides, once you've been given a free pardon of sin, are you going to reject it? He who has begun a good work in you, in a covenantal agreement he takes responsibility for, with his own name on the dotted line, he who has begun a good work within you, it is he that will draw it unto completion. Him working in you. The gift of the Holy Spirit sealed in you from the moment of conversion until you are next to him standing in glory. That is his promise to you. That is a promise fulfilled. A foretaste of the glory yet to come. Sin is unacceptable before God. The sacrifice of Christ however, covered that sin. And the new covenant offers us a new nature which prevents us from not being able to stand before God. He calls you his children. And God does not disown his children. Reading in the gospel according to John on this very topic is as the disciples were preparing, as Jesus was preparing his disciples for his death. He teaches, before long the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. On that day you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am within you. You are 
in this great house of God. House meaning family. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. If you haven't underlined that in your copy of God's Word, this is John chapter 14, verse 21, or mark it in the margins of your, your Bible or in the flyleaf. This is what Paul picks up on when he says, should we sin all the more and so the grace may abound, God forbid, because Christ identifies. This is how you know that you're saved. This is one of the evidences that you know that you're saved. What is your nature? What are the details of your nature? Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. That's it. If your nature has been changed and there is a definable difference with you, if your friends, if the community of the church can say, there's something different about you, there's something new about you, that's the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit on your life. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself unto them. Then Judas not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. He's foretelling the way that the Holy Spirit works in our lives. In other words, Judas, this other Judas, is asking, Why don't you just go to the rest of the world? Why aren't you the great evangelist? Why did Paul have to walk over half of Europe to spread the news? Wouldn't it be better if you did it yourself? And Jesus is basically telling them they're not going to see the transformation in other people unless you're the people who are transformed. You are the evidence of the gospel. The way that you live your life in a regenerate state, the way you live your life before others, that's the evidence that the gospel still makes a difference. If someone can point to you and say there's something different about you, there's a peace that sustains you through any hurricane, there's a joy that keeps a smile on your face through any, any point of suffering, then they'll know that you are my disciple. And the Holy Spirit is the sustainer. We will make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. This is the other side of that coin. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But, highlight this too. The Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Don't worry if you've got a bad memory. Don't worry if you're an introvert. Don't worry if you don't feel comfortable having that awkward five-minute conversation with a person that you know doesn't live a gospel life, that person that you know has rejected Christ. Don't worry about that because as another part of this covenant, he himself promises the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Every Christian has no less than one. You are equipped marvelously for some mode of ministry, whether it is missions or evangelism, whether it is in worship, or if it's in preaching and teaching and discipleship. Everybody is gifted and wonderfully made for some mode of ministry, and they are furnished further with the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, goodness, faithfulness, patience, self-control, joy. All of these things are a part of you as part of your position in Him. Him living within you. The Holy Spirit binding Himself to you and transforming you into that which you could never be on your own. And when you are called by a divine appointment to have that conversation of the difference that Jesus can make, this is your memory verse. 
that tells you that he takes responsibility for that conversation. How many of you are scared to death that you'll say the wrong thing if you come into someone and have to confront them about Jesus? This is the verse that tells you don't be because he directs it. I will remind you all things. will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I have said to you. This is also a covenant of hope. A covenant which dispels all fears. A covenant which dispels even doubts. A covenant that we can cling to. Not just in the hereafter, but in the here and now also. That's something that I think that we've gotten wrong in a lot of of, uh, the culture of the church. We seem to think that the church is all about avoiding hell, when in fact the church is also about equipping the saints for life on earth. It's not just about heaven after you die. It's being a citizen of heaven right now. That's where the the uh, the fruit of the Spirit comes in. The Holy Spirit brings to us If you are in Christ, if you have accepted His sacrifice and earnestly repented of your sins, this is the promise of God. The Holy Spirit brings us a peace that is unmovable. No matter what the storm is of this life that comes your way, as long as you look through the eyes of eternity, not through the lens of the here and now, you will have a faith that will sustain you, that will anchor you in place that the devil cannot remove. You have a joy that is unquenchable. That smile that keeps you Happiness is built on again, happenstance. That's why those two words sound as closely as they do. The circumstances of life make you happy. That's where addiction actually comes in. You need something to make you happy again. Joy is different. Joy isn't quenchable. The joy of the Holy Spirit imparted unto you is a form of glee that maintains you through anything. As long as you rely on Him. The lens of eternity that is offered to the Christian and no one else. A wisdom that cannot be broken because the Holy Spirit resides within you, teaching you all things, reminding you of all things. And again, the same thing with a knowledge greater than the world can possibly comprehend because the foolishness of God is greater than all of these things. In fact, an unregenerate person will not understand the ministries of God. But they become curious. When they see love on display, that's what toppled the Roman Empire. Not the Visigoths. What toppled the Roman Empire for Christ and what established basically a new, a new revival throughout the Western world and the, Eastern, the whole world now is the idea that they visibly saw a love, a self-sacrificing love in this people called Christian that they could not find anywhere else. The Christians who took care of the sick without pay. The Christians who buried the dead and comforted the families without reservation. The Christians who accepted you no matter what race, no matter what creed, no matter what ethnicity, no matter what nation you were from. That's what built the church that has been alive for more than 2,000 years. Still growing today and an endurance that sustains us through anything that can be thrown at us in this life. Paul, while in prison, writes this for us. What shall separate us from the love of God, from the love of Christ? This is something else that you can throw into that once saved, always saved thing that people keep arguing with us about. 
Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, any circumstance that you can think of in this life, as it is written, for your sake we face death all the day long, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered? No! Paul's having an argument with himself here for your benefit. No! In all of these circumstances, in all of these things, in every hurricane, in every drought, in every illness, in every virus, in every, every scene of persecution, in every political climate, in every economic climate, none of it matters in the scope of eternity because God sustains you. In all these things, we are more than conquerors to Him through first loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's enough to make a Baptist shout. Nothing can take us out of his hand. The image that Jesus even sets up himself in the gospel according to John Nothing will, my Father who giveth me, who giveth me them, no one can take them out of his hand. And those, all that he gives me will come to me. If anyone comes to me, and I will in no way cast out. There's also that image of them separating him from his right hand. The reason is, it's one hand holding over top of another. You can't jump out. No one can pull you out. You are there. Once you are in the family of God. You are His, sustained by Him. But there's that other part of that beautiful old song, Trust and Obey. There is a service that He has equipped us to perform. Jesus Himself offers us three giant commandments, three great commandments. He reminds us of two and He gives us one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. In other words, love God, the Father, with everything that you are. Put Him first in your life. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then all these things shall be what? Added unto you. He is the keystone of your life. Put Him first. He is the paramount of everything. The second, like unto it, everybody that's made in God's image. You love God by also loving everybody else that's made in His image. Everybody else that's an image bearer of the Most High. And he writes, he pins that down as love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these things, all the law. Basically, the entire Old Testament can be summed up in these two statements. Love God with everything that you are and love all those that are made in His image. That's it. You want the Old Testament in a nutshell? There you've got it. But then at communion, when he's gathered in the upper room with his closest friends, friends that he now, students now friends, friends now brothers. You can tell this is important to John because he spends almost half of his narrative space talking about this scene. Love one another as I have loved you. By this they will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is how we give evidence of the fact that we're Christians. 
This is why they consider some churches to be full of hypocrites, because they don't see them loving each other, they see them hating each other, tearing each other down, despising each other, gossiping against each other. You want to know what a strong church is? It doesn't matter the size, it doesn't make, matter the income. What makes a strong church is their ability to head, to meet anxiousness and troublesome times head on, meet it united, stay together as friends and brothers and sisters, meet it as a family, and power through it under the certain knowledge that God will sustain them. Paul continues. This is his commentary on the reason that we should take communion frequently. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Have you loved the Lord by putting Him first in everything that you are? Have you loved your neighbor enough to help with the ministries of the church and missions? Not only in tithing, that's a component of it, but do you also tithe your time? Do you tithe your talents? Are you engaged in feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, supporting and singing, lifting your voices to God? Are you using everything that you are to minister to those who might not know him as well in evangelism? Are you prepared, like Peter asks us, to give an account of the hope you have, but do it with gentleness and respect? Are you living, in other words, Paul tells us, before you come here, and he, he was using the greed of the Corinthian church as a backdrop of this because they, they used to have a giant feast before they would come to communion. They'd have a giant church-wide potluck and then as the pinnacle of that event, they would come together in communion. But he noticed that the rich guys were coming in and they were stuffing themselves. And so when the poorer people came in later, there was nothing left. And he's, I'm not going to bless you for doing these things because you're making the poor feel rejected. You're marginalizing your own. And that's not right. For the table of the Lord is open to everyone who is blessed by God with his faith. Everyone who is calling upon him, who has earnestly repented of their sins and call him Lord, they are welcome here. That's what he's saying. So use this time to examine yourself. As we come to remember, as we come to the table of the Lord, are we truly loving Him with everything that we are? Are we truly loving our neighbors as ourselves in all the ways that that implies? Through discipleship, missions, and evangelism. Are we loving one another through fellowship just as Christ loves us? And as a church, as a summation of all of those commandments, He gives us a commission Go into the, all the world. Make disciples of every nation, every people, teaching them to obey everything that I've command you, commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. That's all the commandments in summation. Go make 
teach. Are we doing that? Repentance brings us to forgiveness. The table of the Lord is not meaningless. It's the time when we come and we examine ourselves and see how well are we living up to the standard of Him who loved us, who called us, and who sacrificed for us. So as we approach the Lord's table, take a moment to examine ourselves. And in the act of taking the bread and taking the cup, rededicate ourselves to this purpose. Love Him with everything that we are. Love our neighbor as ourselves in an active way. In an active way, not just withholding anger and wrath from them, but by participating in the ministry of hope before them. And love one another as a church with that same self-sacrificing love that Christ offers you. And all God's people said. And Heavenly Father, as we now come before your table, Lord, we ask that you would examine our hearts. That for the time that we have not heard the cry of the needy, for the times that we have not put you above all else in our lives, for the times that we have forsaken your bride, the church, for the times that we have denied fellowship to our brothers and sisters, for the times where we were disobedient to you, we come now before your throne asking your forgiveness that you would continue to mold us and shape us after your will. That as we stand before you now, as we approach this table, Lord, cleanse us. For we confess to you that we have, we have not been wholly obedient. Free us from the shackles of our sin. Free us from the tempter and the enemy. Free us to be a light of hope to the nations. Free us to be a source of joy to you, to bless your name. Free us for joyful obedience to the kingdom. Jesus' name we pray. All the people of God said, Amen. Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share His Word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person, to contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you, and God bless you.